Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to the second shortest book in the Old Testament, Haggai. Haggai. The word that comes to my mind when I think about Haggai is priorities. Priorities. We all have them, and to define who we are, and they determine what we do. Uh, they dictate how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, how we spend our money. We always have time and energy and cash for whatever we consider a priority. Did you have your quiet time this morning? Did you take a shower today? Don't answer that. Okay, out loud. Somebody might have to get up and move down the aisle right from you if you said no. Um, did you work out today? Um, ha- have you bought a new car recently? Um, the point is, right, our priorities reveal what is most important to us in life. And oftentimes, however, we have misplaced priorities. We, we get overly focused on secondary matters and we end up neglecting what matters most. And because we're prone to get our priorities out of whack from time to time, it's helpful to regularly examine and evaluate our priorities to make sure that we're truly committed to what matters most in life. And the book of Haggai helps us in that regard. It serves us well because God's people had gotten their priorities out of whack. They had gotten distracted from what mattered most in life. And so in order to refocus them and get them to recommit to what was most important in life, God sent them a prophet by the name of Haggai, which means festive or festival, who rebuked them for their misplaced priorities. Haggai was the first post-exilic prophet who ministered to the Jewish remnant who had returned to their homeland from Babylon to rebuild the temple. And we are going to make a big transition here uh, in our study of the, the minor prophets. Uh, up until this point, uh, every prophet we've, we've looked at has been what's called a pre-exilic prophet. In other words, they were prophesying about the coming exile, that if uh, the nations of Israel or Judah did not repent, uh, that God would punish them by bringing the Assyrians or the Babylonians, right? Assyrians were the ones that uh, conquered Israel. Um, uh, the, the Babylonians were the ones who conquered Judah. And so they were warning them, listen, if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't change your ways, uh, this is what's going to happen. So they were, they were pre-exile. And then you have uh, two prophets who ministered during the exile. Who were they? Daniel and Ezekiel. So two of the major prophets that we know of as major prophets, they were the only two who prophesied while the nation was in Babylon, um, uh, those 70 years. And then you have what's called post-exilic prophets. Uh, those are prophets that, that, that prophesied after uh, the people came back from exile. And so Haggai um, and, of course, Zechariah and Malachi, the three remaining uh, minor prophets are all what we consider post-exilic prophets. And so I, I say that because um, we need to understand the, the context, the historical context of Haggai's ministry. And so let me just remind you uh, of what we've been learning about 
uh, regarding the history of Israel. After the death of King Solomon, David's son, uh, the nation of Israel split in two. Uh, Ten of the tribes went north. They were ruled by Jeroboam. Uh, Two of the tribes stayed south. They were ruled by Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Uh, In the years that followed, both Israel and Judah fell away from the Lord, and he sent prophets to warn them to repent or he would punish them. And in 722 B.C., Assyria attacked Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and led Israel into captivity. And about 100 years later, in 597 B.C., Babylon attacked Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, and led some into exile. Could have been 605, 597. Um, There was a couple different um, attacks. Uh, About 11 years later, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, returned uh, to Jerusalem to crush rebellion uh, of the man he had left in charge of Jerusalem. He burned down the walls of the city and uh, destroyed the temple, didn't leave one stone on top of the other, and uh, took the rest of the people in exile. Now, soon after that, as uh, was prophesied um, by Daniel uh, during the exile, the Babylonians were overthrown by who? Remember? Remember? the Medes and the Persians. And so the new Persian king was named Cyrus, and he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And this was a direct um, uh, answer, I guess you could say, or or a direct fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 44, verse 28 uh, says that Isaiah prophesied that that God would raise up a man named Cyrus who would would, uh, make a decree and allow the people to come back to the, to the land. So, um, in fact, Cyrus not only gave them the freedom to go back to Jerusalem, but he even promised to pay for all the work uh, out of his royal treasury and even return the, the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple. And so he was a much more gracious, benevolent ruler, wanting uh, these captive people to go, go home and to be able to reestablish their religion Um, and to rebuild their temple, rebuild their walls. And so about 50,000 Jews, led by a man named Zerubbabel, who was the governor uh, of, of, of Jerusalem, and the high priest named Joshua, they returned to rebuild the temple. And so we find that account in what book of the Bible? Anybody remember? The book of Ezra. So Ezra talks about all this. Uh, In fact, Haggai is mentioned, along with Zechariah, who we're going to look at next time. Um, They're both mentioned in the book of Ezra. Of course, um, after they rebuilt the temple, uh, they wanted to rebuild the walls around the city. And who was responsible for that? Nehemiah. And that's, of course, chronicled in the book of Nehemiah. So anyway, here's this group of people, 50,000 Jews, uh, under the direction of Zerubbabel and Joshua, they return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and they get off to a great start. And within a year after they return, they had built this altar, kind of a temporary altar out, out in front of the, the temple uh, to offer, to, to reinstitute the, 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 the temple sacrifices, the sacrificial system. And also they finished the foundation. But their progress was short-lived because their enemies, who were the Samaritans in the north, who at this point had become half-breeds because those who had returned, the Israelites that had remained in the northern area, the northern tribes, intermingled with the Assyrians that they had left there as well to propagate the land. And so they were now considered half-breeds 
by the southern tribes, by Judah. And so when the Samaritans said, when the Samaritans saw that they were rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, they're like, hey, we want to help. And they're like, over our dead body, you're going to help. You guys are unholy. You're half-reeds. We don't want anything to do with you. Take a hike. Well, the Samaritans didn't like that, getting blown off like that. And so they began to discourage them and even threaten them if they continue to rebuild the temple. And so the people got so disheartened and so scared that they stopped working because of these threats and even some lawsuits that uh, they said that what you're doing is illegal. And, and uh, Darius later on, the, who, who um, took over the Medes and the Persians after Cyrus died, uh, he had to come back and say, hey guys, yeah, you do have the right to do this because I looked in the decree, Cyrus said it was okay, so right, I'm going to reaffirm that you guys have every authority to do this. And so in the meantime, however, uh, the spiritual apathy began to creep into the hearts of these, uh, these Israelites uh, in, in, in Jerusalem and they became indifferent to the one thing they had returned to do. Why did they come back to Jerusalem? To rebuild God's house, his temple. And so they showed no interest or concern for God's house. All they cared about was themselves. No one cared about God's work anymore. All except one man. And God used that man to stir up the people to get back to work and to finish the job they had started. And that man obviously is Haggai. And he preached a series of four prophetic sermons that confronted the people of Israel for failing to put God first and explained that that was why they were experiencing difficult economic circumstances. Uh, It was God's chastisement uh, for their uh, apathy and indifference. And he urged them to complete the temple that they had let sit unfinished for 16 years. So they got there, first year they were going like gangbusters, and then the work stopped, and it sat there for like 15, 16 years. And they didn't touch it. Weeds growing up all over the place, right? You can just imagine what that looked like. And so he, he motivated them to, to get back to work, ultimately with God's promises of future blessing. And we know that's very typical of the prophets, right? They would, they would kind of give the bad news first, And they would confront the people regarding their sin, but then they would motivate them to repent because of the promises of restoration and blessing if they did. And so the people responded, uh, and according to the book of Ezra, the temple was completed and dedicated just over three years later. So what took them, you know, for 16 years they took a break, and then three years they got back to work and they got it done. Well... Few prophets ever saw any success from their ministries during their lifetimes. You know that most of the prophets, right, uh, just got blown off. And uh, it seemed like all that that they said fell on deaf ears and and others were even persecuted by the people. Uh, They didn't want to hear what they had to say. And and, and most of the time, they had no other choice but to sit back and wait for the the fulfillment of God's judgment, i.e. Habakkuk. Remember him? He was like, okay, Lord, I don't get this. Why you would judge uh, us? You know, I know we deserve to be judged, uh, but, but with, with the Babylonians, seriously, they're, they're way worse than we are. Uh, but he had nothing else to do but just to wait around for that to happen. But he said, you know, I'm going to trust you. Even though this is going down, you're worthy to be worshipped. 
Haggai, on the other hand, had the joy and the privilege of seeing people repent and obey. And as a result, he, he, you know, they experienced God's blessing once again. And so he was a blessed prophet in that regard, that he got to see what the others never got to see. So let's look at this book together. It's only two chapters and uh, short enough for us to, to really just read through it and comment on it as we go. Um, if you were to break it down very simply, uh, you could say chapter one is the confrontation to build, and, and chapter two is the encouragement to build. So you have uh, really chapter one is, is, is more rebuke, and you'll, you'll hear the tone of rebuke, and then chapter two is, is, is really a tone of encouragement. But the way I want us to look at it is, is not just in those two chunks, chapter 1, chapter 2, but according to the four sermons that, that uh, Haggai preached. And uh, they're very clearly marked out for us. Uh, there's no question about the time frame of Haggai's ministry um, because he uh, gave us these time markers uh, which are very helpful. For example, look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, okay, you can't get any more specific than that, right? Uh, he's telling you the actual year and the, the month and the day. Uh, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Ze- Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, and we'll stop there for a second. So, Here's Haggai along with his contemporary Zechariah, which I mentioned already, was part of this first group that returned to Judah from Babylon. You can look back at Ezra chapter 5, uh, verse 1, and, and you can see them mentioned here. Uh, Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. Ezra write, writes this, when the prophets Haggai, uh, Haggai when, when the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God, the God of Israel, who is over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. It says it again in chapter 6, verse 14, and the elders of the Jews were successful in building through uh, the pro- in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah son of Idu, and they finished building according to the command of God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so uh, we're helped here by, by these little time markers. And uh, notice verse 15 here of Haggai 1, on the 24th day of the sixth month, the second year of Darius the king, uh, chapter 2 verse 1, on the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, verse 10, on the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, uh, verse 18, the, uh, uh, from the 24th day of the ninth month, again he, he repeats that, and then finally in verse 20, then the word of the Lord came to a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, and so Again, just to show you those time markers, it's really easy to kind of place this around 520 B.C. Uh, is when, when we believe that this was, was written. So let's look at the sermons, okay? The first sermon, and, and again, these time markers are, are how we break up the book. The book just kind of breaks apart into these four sermons based on these, 
these uh, four different um, sermons given on, the first three given on separate um, days and the last two given on the same day. So the first sermon, um, notice verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. And so again, the people were putting off rebuilding the temple and the excuse they gave was it just wasn't the right time. It's just a timing thing. They had come back to Jerusalem with these great intentions and they got off to a great start, but now they were facing opposition, they were facing economic hardship, as we're going to see in just a moment, and they were discouraged, they were intimidated, and so they rationalized away their responsibility to proceed with God's work. And they were waiting for a better time, perhaps when the economy picked up again. I don't know if you remember that this was the book that I preached from uh, five years ago when we launched our Above and Beyond campaign. And uh, if you remember five years ago, the economy was in the tank, big time. And, uh, and, and so from a human perspective, uh, it, it was the worst possible time to be launching a building campaign, right, when you consider the state of the economy, and uh, we, we talked about this. We were very upfront and honest as elders and pastors and said, listen, it would be very easy for us to make the excuse that this is just bad timing and hold off until the economy improves and with all the bankruptcies and the bailouts and the cutbacks and the layoffs and the salary reductions. And I mean, this is no time to be thinking about expanding our facilities, right? Those are the things that we were dealing with, not necessarily here in our church, but just in the world and in, in our country. And uh, I mean, people were hurting financially, wondering how they're going to make ends meet, and, and, and we're about to ask them to give extra money to, to a building fund, right? You guys are crazy. What's your problem? And we said, you know what? We think it's the best time to let God show off, because then it would be clearly Him, right, that, that had to provide uh, in light of the, 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 the state of the economy. And so here we are five years later, by the grace of God, about to move into our new facility that the Lord has provided, right, through his people uh, during difficult economic times. And uh, he gets all the glory for that. And um, we, uh, one thing I regret about this that we didn't do on this second phase that we did the first phase, and those of you that were around here during the first phase will remember this, um, we actually put a sign up out on the road that said, this project funded by God through the sacrificial, joyful, generous giving of his people. Uh, you know, you normally see a building project on the side of the road. There's a sign that says this building, this project funded by Bank of America or Amogee Bank or Wood Forest Bank, right? And the bank gets all the glory. Um, we wanted God to get all the glory, right? That this is, this is a project funded by God. People drive by the road and what? And they, they go into the ditch going, what is that? I've never seen that before, you know? Um, but, but again, that, I mean, I think the Lord gets um, even more glory for how he has provided for us in these times. Notice how he goes on in verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. And so... Haggai knew what was holding them up, what the holdup was. They're like, well, it's just not at the right time. He's like, really? So then apparently it is time 
for you to dwell in your paneled houses while the house of the Lord is here in, in disrepair, it's desolate. And the point was this, that even though times were tough for them, they had found the time and the money and the energy to invest in their own houses. And, and not just, um, you know, fixer-uppers. I mean, they were, they were going for it with their houses. It says it is time for you to, yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, which was the kind of houses that kings would build, fancy houses. And uh, some, some, someone even said that they may have um, been even using the wood that had been brought to build the temple to build their homes. Remember Cyrus said that he would provide the wood, and, 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 and so they're thinking, hey, maybe it's possible they were actually taking the wood. They were stealing from the wood pile that <laughs> was meant for the temple. They were using it for their own houses. I mean, can you imagine going to Home Depot for 16 years to buy supplies to improve your house, and every time you had to pass by the unfinished temple? Walk by the temple, oh, there it is, it's not looking so good, but I'm going to Home Depot. Because I need some plywood, I need some duvet, I need some, a new ceiling fan, I need, right? That's what they were doing. They had lost focus of their priority. They got sidetracked from the primary purpose why they had come back to Jerusalem. It wasn't to build their own houses, right? It was to build God's house. And this just showed how calloused and indifferent they had become. They cared more about their own house than they did God's house, and they were spending all their time and energy and money on themselves, and they had nothing left to give to God. They had more important things to do than to rebuild the temple. They were, they were, they were just thinking about themselves, bottom line. They became self-focused rather than kingdom-focused, and they were putting themselves first and God, how about last, <laughs> not even second, right? You know, it's true, isn't it, that even when times uh, are tight, things are tight financially, it seems that we always find a way to spend money on things we want. <laughs> our own projects, our own pleasures, it's just the way it is. And we end up neglecting the work of the Lord and we put ourselves first, right? We put ourselves first and we put God last. And that's why he says in verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. If you've got a pen in your hand, you might want to underline that phrase, consider your ways. In other words, set your heart on your ways. Carefully think about what you're doing and where it's taking you. Look at where putting yourself first has gotten you. Notice he says, consider your ways. You have sown much but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What he's saying to them is, hey, listen, guys. I mean, do an honest self-evaluation here. I mean, the way you're living right now is not paying off. Uh, you're working harder, but you're bringing home less. You're seeking personal satisfaction, but you're never satisfied. There was this uh, sense of discontent uh, in the people. And he's like, have you ever thought about why that might be? 
Why are you so discontent? Um, instead, of, instead, you're experiencing all this financial hardship. You don't have enough to eat or drink. Your clothes don't keep you warm. Your income doesn't cover your expenses. It's like you have holes in your purses and your wallets. It's like, where's all my money? I thought, man, I got a paycheck. And it's, just, it's gone. Where'd it go? I mean, does that not sound like a lot of people <laughs> in the world? That might even describe your life right now, right? That you're like, hey, I'm working harder, making less, and man, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find, I don't, I don't get any satisfaction, any pleasure in, in any of this that I'm investing time and money and energy into, and, and I'm just completely discontent. And the point is that they had brought this financial crisis on themselves because they hadn't put God first. They were more focused on their own houses than they were his house. And so notice, uh, just jumping ahead here to verses uh, uh, 9 through 11. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what ground, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So who was responsible for these economic conditions, ultimately. God was. He said, I called the drought. And so what the, all these financial difficulties were, were God's discipline. This was divine discipline for squandering their resources on themselves rather than giving to the Lord's work. And you know that God, back in the beginning of the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, book of Deuteronomy, uh, promised the nation that if you obey and honor me with your wealth, I will bless you abundantly. But if you get stingy on me, right, you're going to pay. Um, I think one of the most basic principles in God's word regarding giving is that if we're faithful to give to God, He'll be faithful to give back to us. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. In other words, um, it, it's the principle of, of giving to God off the top, right? Don't give God the leftovers. Give God the first fruits, Right? I don't know how you guys do your personal budget, but I think just to, how to apply this principle practically is if you have a monthly budget and you have your income um, column and then you have your expenses column, hopefully the very first thing that's listed on your expenses is what? Your giving or your tithe. That, that's what comes out first before even you think about your mortgage or you think about your car payment or you think about your electric bill, your cell phone payment, right? That you think about what I'm going to give off the top to the Lord. Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, they will pour into your lap for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. In other words, if you give to the Lord stingily, he's going to give to you stingily. If you give abundantly to the Lord, he's going to give to you abundantly. 
to the point where you're going to have to, right? That was a lot of stuff. They're, they're, they're filling the basket. They're shaking it down, right? And they're even putting, being able to fit more in there. And then it's just falling all, all over the place in your lap. And so I think the question we need to consider is whenever we experience financial difficulties, the first thing we should consider is whether or not we're, we may be robbing God. Uh, when, when, uh, whenever somebody comes to me and says, hey, you know, we're really having a hard time financially, um, one of my first questions is, are you giving to the Lord? I don't ask you how much you're giving. I don't want to know how much you're giving. La, 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 la. That's not for me to know, right? But are you giving to the Lord? Well, we just, we can't afford it. That's your problem. I said, I'm not a rocket scientist. I'm not Dave Ramsey, okay? But, you know, that's your problem. And, and, and I challenge them. I encourage them. Hey, start giving $5. If that's all, you think five, just put a $5 bill in the offering box. Start somewhere. But, but make sure you're giving to the Lord first, that you're prioritizing the Lord in your giving. A century after Haggai, another post-exilic prophet came along named Malachi. And uh, if you know anything about the book of Malachi, um, he accused the Jews of robbing God of tithes and offerings and therefore robbing themselves of blessing. Chapter 3 Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, a little preview here. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now on this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. What he's saying is, listen, when you give to me, I will bless you. And, and I think the bottom line here is this, that, that God blesses people with money so that they can be a blessing to others by investing it back in the kingdom of God. I've had a couple conversations recently with, with, with uh, men in our church who have just honestly just said, you know, Ken, I don't understand why the Lord has been so good to me. I, I don't understand. I, I can't take any credit for the blessing, the financial blessing that the Lord just continues to pour out on me. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and, and in that conversation, they're telling me all the ways that they're able to invest that money into kingdom work. And I'm like, I'll tell you exactly why God is blessing you, because you're giving it back to Him. And it's the whole R.G. Letourneau principle, right? Remember R.G. Letourneau, the guy who came up with all the caterpillar um, earth-moving equipment, and he was just a genius and invented all this stuff, made millions of dollars, and started Letourneau University. And uh, somebody asked him, and how in the world um, can you give so much? And he says, well, God shovels it in, and I shovel it out, and he's got a bigger shovel. That's what he said. And um, got to the point where he, was, he was, um, went from 
giving away 10% to giving away 90% and living on 10%. Pretty amazing testimony. Everybody, there was no question what R.G. Letourneau's priorities were. Now, granted, we all have legitimate financial obligations, right? We have mortgages, we have car payments, we have grocery bills and electric bills and school bills and POA fees and different things like that, okay? We, we have to be responsible for those things. Some people say, well, you know, we're just going to trust God and I'm going to give my entire check away this month and we're just going to trust God for a mortgage. No, that's stupid, okay? That's not, that's not, doesn't make any sense, okay? You need to be responsible, all right? Um, that may sound spiritual, right? Um, but, but then when the, your mortgage company says, hey, where's, our, where's your mortgage? Well, we gave it away to the Lord. They're like, okay, well, you can give us your house too, okay? Um, not a good testimony. The question is, how do we use our discretionary money, right? That, the money that's left over, if you will, um, after we, we do those things. Um, Warren Wiersbe makes this comment. I think it's interesting. He said, measured by third world standards, Christians in the Western world are living in luxury, yet their giving is low and their debts are high because their wealth is being used for things that really don't matter. Ouch. I'll just say this, whatever level you are living at um, compared to the majority of the rest of the world, you are living in a mansion. You are a rich person. If you've never been outside of the U.S., you don't have no clue what I'm talking about. But if you've been to India, you've been to Russia, you've been to Honduras, you've been to uh, Mexico, you've been to other places, other parts of the world, Africa, um, I mean, you come back and you think, I'm a king, I'm a queen. I live in a palace, you know. Um, Getting back here to the point of Haggai, notice verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, he says, Consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that it may be pleased, that I may be pleased with it and may be glorified, says the Lord. So God here, again, uses economic crisis to expose our sin of self-indulgence and of neglecting to put God first in our financial decisions and our investments. Um, Just thinking about that verse in Matthew. You guys know this verse well. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? So God was using this financial crisis, uh, these bad, these difficult times, um, to, to get their attention. And, uh, and, and, and he inspired Haggai here to tell the people to get back to work. Why? Verse 8. That I may be, what? Pleased with it and be glorified. It would please and honor me. It would serve as a, a clear public statement that God was their highest priority. 
that his work was more important than anything else that was clamoring for their attention or their time or their money. One commentator said this, from the nation's standpoint, it would be a sign that the God of Israel had not gone out of business when Jerusalem fell. That's what the nations were thinking. Well, look, apparently the God of the, the Jews is done. He, 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 he went away when the, the temple went away. And, and basically, it would publicly vindicate God before the watching world is what, was, what, was he, what was he was saying there. That's why it would please him. That's why it would honor him and glorify him. The temple was a visible sign of, of the covenant God had made with Israel to dwell with them forever and to fulfill his promises to them. And so by rebuilding the temple, they were inviting God to return to dwell among them and ultimately preparing the way for who? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So Haggai gets in their, gets in their kitchen, gets in their grill, and says, you guys need to consider your ways because your priorities are way out of whack. Notice how they respond. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. And so, by the way, this was not the typical response of a prophet, was it? To a prophet. Most of the prophets got shut up. That's, that's, that was the response of the people. Shut up. We want to hear you. Who asked you? Beat it. Or we're going to start throwing rocks at you. Or we're going to kill you or something. That's typically what the prophets got. And the normal pattern was, was they would sin and they would be warned. Uh, they would be rejected and they would be punished. Uh, but that didn't happen in this case. And, and I'm sure nobody liked what Haggai had to say to them. Some of you haven't liked what I've been saying tonight, right? Some of these things, whenever you talk about money and finances, it's kind of like you're getting the medal in here, right? Um, listen, nobody likes an alarm clock. I mean, it's the least favorite device in my house, okay, is the alarm clock. Why? Because it wakes me up every morning. All right? When I'm sound asleep, this morning, I, the alarm went up. I didn't know where I was. One of those mornings where I didn't know where I was, and I didn't know what that was. And I was like, man, I was like deep REM sleep or something, because I didn't have a clue where I was. Um, and, but that thing woke me up. And, and, and the point is, we don't like to be disturbed. But guess what? Every once in a while, we need a wake-up call, don't we? We need to be stirred out of our apathy. And, and, and the Jewish remnant knew that they were due for a wake-up call, and so they responded by the grace of God in repentance. And they realized that the message was not from Haggai, it was from who? It was from God. And so they obeyed him because they revered him. And notice what, what Haggai says in verse 13, that Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So he confirmed that God would be with them to help them finish the process, to finish the temple. And there's no greater source of comfort and confidence than the presence of the Lord. What did Jesus say when he gave them the commission um, 
his disciples a commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And lo, I am what? With you always. That was the point. So knowing that God is with us to guide us and provide for us should cast out all fear, all worry of accomplishing whatever God-sized task that is before us. Notice verses 14 and 15. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. I love that. The spirit of God stirred their hearts. They acknowledged their misplaced priorities and their apathy, their indifference to God's work, and they recommitted to honoring him by giving the best of their time, the best of their energy, the best of their resources to rebuilding the temple. And so with God's help, the Jews started working again on the temple 23 days after Haggai's rebuke, and they finished it in three short years after that to the glory of God. This is a success story, a rare success story in the, pro- in the minor prophets, Right? So that's the first sermon, chapter 1. That was the longest of the four sermons. Now let's look at the other three quickly here as we we go through chapter 2. The second sermon uh, is is verses 1 through 9. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? And so Haggai knew that there were some people, and he may have been one of them, by the way. Some, some commentators think that he was born in Babylon and just came back with, with the people. Others say that he was there in Jerusalem before the exile, and he was taken into exile and lived through the 70-year exile. And so he was probably, he could have been a very old man at this time. Um, but the point was, there were some people there, some old-timers probably, that were, had been taken into exile and had come back out of love for Jerusalem and love for the temple, and here they are rebuilding the temple, and all they can think about is what the temple used to look like before it got destroyed. And that was a, uh, the Solomon's temple, which was gorgeous, right? Magnificent. And this thing kind of looked like a, you know, a little shack compared to what, what uh, it used to look like. And so they were having a hard time comparing that in their mind. And so here's Haggai understanding that. And notice how he encourages them. He says in verse 4, But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. And then notice what he says here in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and see also in the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with all the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What was he talking about? 
talking about this temple, while it may not look like much, right? This was going to be the temple where Jesus came. That the Messiah was going to come to this temple and he was going to fill it with his glory and, uh, he, would, and he would bring peace. Um, and of course we know that, uh, right, whenever there's this prophecy in the Old Testament, there's a near and there's the far prophecy. There's the mountain peaks. Like you're, all you see is the first mountain and you're like, oh, it's talking about the first coming of Christ. When his glory will fill the temple and there will be peace and, uh, and, and then we, we climb up that mountain and go, isn't this cool? Whoa, check it out. There's another mountain out there. And it's talking about his second coming. So I think this applies, this glory of the temple, the, the, the glory of the latter temple will be greater than the former temple. I think it's not only talking about when Christ came the first time, but when he will come the second time, right, uh, during the millennial reign uh, where his glory will fill the earth. That's the second sermon. Uh, now let's look at his third sermon, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or cook food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the prophets answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will become unclean. And Haggai said, so, this, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So what he was implying there is that um, in the same way that holy things touching other things don't make them holy, but unholy things, teaching other things t- touching other things makes them unholy, that, that uh, all the sacrifices that you're offering on this altar, this temporary altar that you built, are unclean as long as the temple is in ruins and you have misplaced priorities. So he's getting back to the whole idea. He's confronting them and saying, hey, don't, don't go to the temple thinking you're all good with the Lord, right? Uh, all of this is unholy uh, in, in, in the eyes of God. Verse 15, but now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do you consider from this day do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from this day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree? Is, it has not borne fruit, yet from this day on I will bless you. So again, he's reminding them, hey, just, just so you remember this, guys, that as long as you let the temple lay barren, Right, and it was just the foundation, and you weren't moving any further on this thing. I, I, I was disciplining you. You were living in disobedience, and so I was chastising you. And isn't that how the Lord deals with us? Right, when we disobey, um, the, the basic principle of Scripture: if you disobey me, I will what? Curse you. If you obey me, I will bless you. And so he said, you were under my curse. I was punishing you. I was, I, was, um, 
I was disciplining you. But now that you've resumed the work on the temple, I will what? What does he say? Verse 19, I will bless you. I'm going to bless you from now on because you've repented and you are are striving to obey and honor me and please me. I'm going to bless you. So, fourth sermon, verses 20 through 23. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of this month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So here is a specific prophecy regarding Zerubbabel and uh, how the Lord was going to use him in some significant way. Now, if you look at the history of Israel, uh, this is pretty much all we know about Zerubbabel was that he was used by God to help rebuild the temple. He never became this great leader, but if you know anything about Zerubbabel, who was he a descendant of? Guess who? King David. And so what that means is that he was in the line of who? The, the Messiah. And he's actually mentioned two times in the genealogies in both Matthew and in Luke. Um, Zerubbabel is mentioned in that genealogy of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think, you know, because Zerubbabel, you know, it sounds like some, something big is going to happen to Zerubbabel. Well, it really didn't. So we know that he was ultimately, when God was prophesying about Zerubbabel, he was thinking of who? He was thinking about Jesus. He was thinking about his descendant. And so his point is that he was going to bless the house of David through Zerubbabel, ultimately in the person of Jesus. And again, here's a reference to Christ, both his first coming and ultimately his second coming, um, that uh, again, God encouraging the people with the promise that, that the Gentile kingdoms would be overthrown and, and the Messiah would establish his reign on this earth. Has that happened yet, ultimately? No. So again, a reference here to the millennial kingdom. Someone said this, No disturbance on heaven or earth could cause God to relent from fulfilling his promises to Israel. God has unconditionally and irrevocably committed himself to Israel's ultimate blessing. Is there a future for Israel? Absolutely. And uh, that's why you want to be a friend of Israel. (laughs) Uh, You don't want to ever go against Israel, right? Because they're God's people and he has a plan for them. And guess what? They win. In the end, they win. So you want to be on their side. And so if you want to pray, pray for the peace of Israel, right? Uh, pray for what's happening in Israel and pray for our knucklehead nation that we stay friends with Israel and don't ever turn away from Israel. Because the day we do that, God will turn away from us, right? Um, we, become, we, 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 we end up on the losing side. All right, so that's the book of Haggai. So what? Hey, let's face it, guys. Keeping God first 
giving him the primacy he deserves in our lives is not easy. Anybody find that easy? I find that extremely difficult, keeping God first. Everything in our lives, in this world, seems to fight for first place. Whether it's our work, our school, um, a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, hobbies, um, ministry even, um, all this stuff fights for first place in our lives. And we prioritize these things and we pursue these things because think, we think we're going to find fulfillment and satisfaction in them. And yet at the end of the day, we find ourselves what? Unfulfilled and discontent, just like the people of Israel. And ironically, true contentment in life comes from not doing what we want, but doing what God wants, right? We go off thinking, you know, I want to be happy. I just want to be happy. So I'm going to go be happy, and I'm going to do what I want, and that's going to make me happy. But guess what? Does it make you happy? No. What makes you happy is doing what God tells us to do in his word. And so Haggai here reminds us that meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life is found in keeping our focus on him and not ourselves. And the point is this, that God is pleased, God is glorified when we make him our highest priority and we sacrificially give and serve to accomplish his kingdom work here on earth. And he chooses to bless our lives as a result. What does Matthew 6.33 say? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and what? All these things will be added unto you. What are all these things? Well, they were worried about what they were going to eat, what they were going to wear, where they were going to live, Right? All these things that we normally naturally worry about. He says, hey, you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. In other words, you seek to do what I want you to do. You, you, you do the right thing and I will provide for you. Obedience always leads to blessing. So if someone looked at your life, would they be able to clearly see that God is your number one priority? I mean, seriously, if you're, maybe your kids looked at your life, your spouse looked at your life, your neighbors looked at your life, your coworkers, your classmates looked at your life, would they be able to tell that God is clearly the number one priority in your life? Would they know by your words and your actions and your choices and the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, that Christ has first place in your life? Would they be able to tell that? And that no one is more important to you than him? Colossians 1.18, we can transfer this whole conversation to the person of Christ, Colossians 1.18, he is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have what? First place in everything. First place in everything. And so my encouragement to you, my challenge to you tonight is what specific changes do you need to make in your life so that God is first place and that Christ is the center of your life. 
That's a practical application from a not-so-minor prophet, Haggai. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that we let other things take first place in our lives than you. And uh, it seems like we're constantly fighting to keep you first and to keep Christ at the center. And Lord, just forgive us for uh, getting distracted and, and uh, allowing other things and other people to get um, in the way of you in our lives. And I just pray, Lord, that you would be gracious tonight and as we have an opportunity to consider our ways, that that's what we would do. That we would take some time tonight, tomorrow morning, to consider our ways, to, to evaluate our priorities, and, and to see if, if, if anything's out of whack. And if it is, Lord, that you would grant us grace to respond like the people uh, responded to Haggai, that they, they repented, and they changed, and they got refocused on you and, and your work and your kingdom. And I pray that, Lord, you would accomplish that work in anyone's hearts who's here tonight who's just got off track and uh, is just really distracted and, and really discontent, that they would recognize, Lord, that discontent, the fact that their life isn't going so hot uh, right now, um, that, that, that they would recognize that as possibly divine chastisement, divine discipline, that you're doing that out of love for them so that you would get their attention, so that they would recognize uh, this is what happens when you walk away from the Lord and you, you do your own thing, that you just experience your curse and your discipline. And Lord, that they would be wooed back to you by your goodness, your faithfulness, so that they could once again experience your blessing in their life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.